Your art was the prettiest art of all the art. Seeing comes before words. The child looks and recognizes before it can speak. Welcome to the Good Berger. Today we're talking about John Berger on Magic Camp. I'm Ben. This is Paul. And I'm Paul. Yeah, that's Paul. Anderson Bros. Um, this is a podcast about art <clears throat> and power for anyone who has a little extra time after school. Although I do want to clear up that this is probably not... Suitable content for children. Uh, no, no, unfortunately not. Although, if you're a cool teenager who smokes cigarettes in the bathroom, we would love to have you. Mm-hmm. Give us a little yeah, bit we, of we would, edge. Yeah, totally. We need that. We need all the help we can get, which is why we have brought John Berger, uh, the awesome, badass uh, socialist art critic, yeah. um, who smokes a lot of cigarettes, uh, or it did um, before he died. Um, to talk about today, and we've kind of been hyping this up a little bit for a couple weeks after Ben's first two intro episodes with um, the Cultural Cold War and, of course, uh, William Blake. But in our first episode, we talked about the, the fact that we wanted John Berger to kind of be another one of our intellectual guides. Um, and you may have heard of him. You might not have. You might have seen somebody reading ways of seeing in a cool coffee shop or slipping it out of a tote boat, tote bag or something like that, because he definitely does have that kind of resurgent hipster appeal, um, and, which is a good thing, I think. Um, but that's primarily the book we're going to be talking about today. And, and I think it's also not a coincidence that I spent this afternoon uh, at the Seattle Art Museum uh, seeing the last day of a special exhibit of Italian Renaissance paintings. Uh, I went in with a sort of ambivalence. I don't, I don't go to those sorts of things just because I want to see Italian Renaissance art. But I wanted to go because it was the last day. I hadn't been to the museum in a while. And I think it actually is kind of the perfect intro for, or, or the perfect framing device for talking about John Berger. Because his whole thing, or one of his main questions, was what can art actually do for us in the contemporary world. He was writing in the 60s and 70s primarily, um, and his ideas, if anything, were incredibly prescient for the era that we're in today, where reproduction and uh, digital media um, have made art even more ubiquitous and uh, accessible than it was at his time. Um, But the inverse relationship that he was keenly aware of was that with the dawn of reproduction of art and the ubiquity of images bombarding us at every turn in this time, the less our culture seemed capable of incorporating art into something uh, meaningfully into our lives. Um, And that was kind of the operating question for his entire career. Um, And he actually has a a couple essays that we're going to take a look at today. They're just going to be chapters one and five of Ways of Seeing. Um, it's actually one long essay, which you can also see in uh, visual form in the BBC television program that he produced, which I've been watching over the last few days and is actually pretty great if you're looking for some very vintage 
um, BBC 70s style documentaries and just to see how esoteric and charming John Berger was. Um, but Ben has selected a few uh, excellent artists of our time who definitely represent the type of um, the type of highbrow thinking and cultural awareness that that John Berger himself champions. Ben, can you uh, lead us into these? Mm, yes. Uh, speaking of the ubiquity of images, we're looking at InstaArt, checking mm. in on some of our favorite artists. Uh, open up the first link, Paul. I just want to re- return to a dude we visited last week. This is a, I think, orthopedic surgeon slash painter slash photographer slash visitor of ancient monuments slash Jesus lover. and. Cool. And I think this is, remember last time he posted just a, an empty canvas? Right. After several months, I think this is the big reveal. This uh, is it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that, it's the only thing I can find after him posting that. What do you Come think? Come to shore? I think, Am I looking at the right yeah, one? Yeah, Come yeah, to yeah, shore? Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking just incredible use of light on the horizon, Um a lighthouse that just screams uh, idyllic northeastern sort of pastime. Some really jagged rocks where you could imagine, uh, I don't know, bashing your brains out if you slipped and fell. Mm-hmm. Um, we've basically just got a really charming, vibrant uh, coastal landscape here. So what more could you want out of your art? Yeah. Yep. Well done. Uh, go to And go to the second link. Right. Okay. So this is this yeah. this is the same guy. The same guy seems to be doing. Maybe I want to say uh, those types of drawings that you sometimes see on, uh, like on memes that are, what if this cartoon character grew up? Yeah. <laughs> like this is what one of the power powder puff girls would look like. She's actually hot, dude. Power, dude, she's hot. <laughs> like, can you like she's a she cartoon, has, but she's actually pretty. She's pretty banging. Massive green eyes. Yeah. Very green it's eyes. It's like quasi-anime, but it, it's mm-hmm. actually... So let me read the caption. And one funny thing about this guy is he puts all of his captions in quotation marks, I notice. Right. So you can say, I finally got around to painting you something. You. I hope you enjoy it for the rest of your life and had a memorable birthday, my friend. So it's for his wife. I mean, it's nice. But, it's for um, his wife? I would assume... That he's mm. maybe it's his daughter. I don't know, but uh, yeah, we we can put that guy to bed. I just wanted to check up, see how he was doing. Um, well, that's okay. Yep. Um, okay. Maybe maybe another one here. Hit the third link. What do we <laughs> What do we have, Paul? I think we have um, that British actor uh, Cillian Murphy, who is bleeding. He's crying tears of blood with the text in uh, kind of like a Godfather style writing, bleed for family. Yeah. I think it's Peaky Blinders reference. Oh, it's, it's Peaky. Oh, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's Peaky Blinders fan art, basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cool. Um, that's great. Yeah. Okay. And then go to the fourth one. I, I have a soft spot for this kid. He's He's got talent. Okay, so this kid could be anybody in your high school yeah. art class. Um, so for that for that reason, I think we we can reserve our most uh, 
our harshest criticism, but he has. No, uh, no, let's tear him apart. Uh, So he's (laughs) he's looking in a mirror um, at himself. One half of the mirror is his actual reflection. The other half is the sketch of his own face. So Mm -hmm. it's a self-portrait. The only difference being that half of it is not a self-portrait. Pretty tricky. He does these little uh, tricks on perspective, combining reality with pictures. Um, Yeah, keep going, kid. You you got talent. Yeah, It's a a step above the usual high school thing where you just draw yourself in a hoodie with your headphones in. That's... That's the typical thing. Or something that ends up looking, honestly, a little bit like Blake with, like, right. some epic hero uh, in a very symmetrical composition, splitting the sky with some sort of magical power. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So that's that's what's up on Instagram. I have Honestly, I think um, most of the Joker art, unfortunately, has, has already passed us by. Um, that wave crested. Pretty quickly after the movie came out, I'm That's seeing. Surprising. I'm actually seeing quite a bit of Witcher fan art out there, which mm-hmm. you, you probably haven't watched. Is not not worth watching. I did watch no. it uh, with Henry Cavill, which mm-hmm. I get. I mean, he's a snack and got very, very, very buffed up for that show. I don't know if it's CGI or if he literally is is doing like massive amounts of roids, but right. definitely, I get it. Um, yeah, man, I'm with you there. I mean, why not? Why not make that kind of stuff? Yeah, and as then yeah, the, and then the Harley Quinn art is is coming. Um, still coming? Is that has that come out already? Well, there's a new mean? movie. The, Sorry, the Suicide Squad was the original. Is there is there another Harley Quinn movie? She's oh, getting a, so, just, she's a getting solo show. Movie. Yeah, right. Oh man, buckle up for that. I mean, that's where it all started with Suicide Squad. Yeah, that's and that true. Was, that was four or five years ago. I saw a trailer for that. Oh my gosh! Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Buckle up. So I for think that. that'll be with us for a while. And I'm also not seeing. I already the Baby Yoda art has also trickled off. I yeah. I had seen a couple like Madonna and Childs with uh, whatever the Mandalorian with uh, Baby Yoda, mm-hmm. like Jesus, and um, you know that was fun, but not happening as much anymore right well that's too bad yeah um and part of the reason why i wanted to look at a few of those besides the entertainment that they provide um i mean i think we both share the experience of looking at that looking at the amount of views the amount of likes that these people get uh and on one hand you can just say oh it's just it's just stupid instagram stuff people like stupid shit that's just the world we live in um but there's also that kind of gnawing question mark beneath it which is why why are these people gaining success what does this say about our culture's ability to uh perceive and apprehend what art is um without being too pretentious about it Mm -hmm. but it really does i think tie in to a lot of berger's points and one of the most interesting points he makes which we can't i can't quite illuminate it perfectly yet because we haven't worked through his main ideas yet is he has a lot to say about the meaning of a hack. What is a hack? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and this even crossed my mind today as I was at this Italian Renaissance museum or, or exhibit, which these weren't hacks by any mean, but they were not 
the major names that you would see in, you know, the major New York museums or on major exhibitions. So they were kind of middle tier to upper middle tier. There were a couple El Grecos and those were kind of the highlight of the exhibit. Um, but it's mostly people who you've never heard of who are in some way, uh, influenced by the Caravaggio's and the Michelangelo's and, and whoever else. Um, and Berger is right to point out that the, art world has not designed a mechanism to separate the masterpiece from the average work, right? Yeah. And ma I use the word masterpiece uh, aware of the flaws in that term as, as he uses it as well. But I wanna, I'll come back to that later, but he has an explanation for that or uh, a thesis about that, which I think is incredibly liberating and, and um illuminating for the world that we live in right now in terms of the amount of shit that we have to sift through, whether it's on Instagram looking at art or clicking through Netflix and trying to find something to watch that doesn't feel like you're you know, yeah. taking a screwdriver to your own temple. Yeah. Um, and I guess and also, yeah, keep going. Just to give a preview of that and to tie it into conversation we had a couple episodes ago about, uh, what's his face? Um, the Pollock critic. I'm totally blanking. Um, what's it? Uh, Clement Greenberg. Clement Greenberg is, you know, he has this classic text on uh, kitsch, which right. another, which would be synonym for hack. And I thought this was a really insightful counterpoint to Greenberg's definition of, of kitsch. Um, mm -hmm. Because you read Greenberg and you're like, yeah, I know kitsch is a thing and I know it's a problem and we can see it all around us. But the way he defines it, it's like, this is so elitist. I'm not sure what to say about it other than to defend crappy art. Right, um, exactly. And Ber Berger, I think, comes through with a lot of clarity <laughs> about where Greenberg gets it wrong. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I won't spill the beans yet. No, that's okay. We'll come to that. Um, and I just want to give a brief intro of who Berger was without going into the whole, you know, bi Wikipedia biography. He was a pretty talented dude. He was constantly either making art or talking about or writing about art. He was a painter first. Um, that's what he initially sought out to be, was a painter. Um, he's an art critic, a novelist, and a historian. And in his time... Uh, the thing that he received the most success for, at, at, at least early in his career, was his fiction, An was his novel. It was his animes, <laughs> yeah. Um, his sexy anime drawings <laughs> that he, of, of characters who already existed. Yeah. Um, so he won the Man Booker Prize, which is the biggest prize for uh, literature in England in 1972, um, for his novel. And to really? tell you something about who he was, or the type of dude he was in the world that he lived in, was he gave away half of the prize money to the Black Panthers. Damn, um, that's sick. Right? Um, which, I mean... Yeah, but what did he do, do with the other half? Then, what did he do with the other half? He used, I believe, to just fund his own writing, basically, to, keep, to be able to keep writing without having to, you know, compromise in any way, mm. which is a, a, an important theme throughout what he has to say about different artists and, and uh, their ability or lack of ability to compromise and cede to the demands that capitalism was placing upon them and yeah. their art. 
Yeah. So that tells you a little bit about, about who he was, especially considering how how hated the Black Panthers were around this time in the early 70s and how they would have been considered um, terrorists. You know, not in the, in the, they would have been, they, and they were considered terrorists. Um, so there's a nice quote here that I think can frame ways of seeing and the influence of ways of seeing, which, like I said, is a famous work, um, but has kind of come back into popularity in the last couple years in part because of um, Berger's death, I, I want to say two years ago, um, but also because you could make a case that a lot of the criticism that people are trying to do, a lot of the media, film, television criticism that is making the rounds on the internet is in some way uh, related to the type of criticism Berger was trying to do, but is also, you could make a case as a bastardization of it in many ways, hmm. um, and one that has been compounded and, uh, uh, I guess, ruined by the demands itself of the internet age of hot takes and Twitter, Twitter and all that yeah. shit, and, if, and you, if re- you understand what I'm saying. And remystified. In- remystified, exactly. Yeah. Which is a great point and one of his most important ideas, and I need to move forward here. So I'll just read this quote. Um, Quote, in an age otherwise characterized by belatedness and alienated repetition, Berger's whole project was to return art to its origins, to rediscover the aura of shared moments and places, and to reinvest experience with the sacred meaning that the instant culture of capitalism had removed from it. Um... It was a personal, artistic, and intellectual program of re-enchantment, referring then to the BBC series. Um, So I think first and foremost, it's important to get out front, uh, come out front saying that Berger was interested in re-enchanting our cynical society's concept of what art could mean, what it could do um, in our world. He also was he was uh, adamant about expressing that it wasn't, it could never be the same, right? Mm -hmm. That we could never go back to the world and the way that art used to be perceived because of the developments in reproduction and the way that the economy had changed. And that it is the primary goal of the art history and curatorial uh, establishment to convince us otherwise, to convince us that we can, which is a myth. Yeah, yeah. Because you yeah, understand what I'm saying, right? In the in the first chapter, he's talking about how the lords of the art world will try and do precisely that to create a timeless timelessness. Again, not to spill the beans, no, in no, order right. to mystify and cover up their the power relations that were there then and are there now, with, right? But, exactly. but in new forms. And then I was just rereading the last chapter. Where he's talking more about advertising. That in the same way the using images and advertising is is almost always a nostalgic uh, tactic to get people to long right. for a mystified past where hierarchies mm-hmm. were cool and, and beautiful mm-hmm. and things like that. Go on. Right. Right. So maybe a good illustration of this or a good entry point into... Because he can be fairly opaque. It's taken me um, several reads through of this book to really grasp the full weight of his argument. 
and this is in not a knock against his work. I think it's just that he writes in a particular way that is a little bit elliptical, um, and he isn't always necessarily the best at uh, illustrating his own very complicated ideas. Uh, or not complicated, but um, subtle ideas. Um, so he has this table um, that I found really interesting. It's maybe the first time I've ever said that about a chart in my entire life. Um, where there was a, a, a study done in Europe that surveyed people from three separate socioeconomic classes, right? So we have manual workers, skilled and white-collar workers, and professional and upper managerial classes, right? So there's also, we can bring into that the assumption of wealth and of education level and ask them, of the places list, listed below, which does an art museum remind you of most, right? So he's polling these people what they, what feeling they get from an art museum or what they associate with an art museum. And what we see is uh, most people, and this goes for the, those upper classes as well as the lower classes, re are reminded of a church when mm -hmm. they see an art museum. But there's a inverse relationship. So if, as in the lower economic class, that number is a lot higher uh, in terms of... Yeah, it's double. 66, it's double. So 66% of manual workers say that uh, an art museum reminds them of a church, right? Mm, yeah. And then next, followed closely by library. Um, and that, that is lower with more education. Um, but it's, it's pretty striking nonetheless that most people associate uh, art or art museums with a sort of rarefied, sanctified religiosity, right? And that is more true of less educated people, right? So that's, that is crucial to Berger's, understanding Berger's project and his point is that he's aware of, and everybody's aware of the fact that nobody gives a shit about art, least of all people who actually need it, right? The only people who uh, and I need is probably not the right word, but the people who give a shit or who think they give a shit about art tend to be pe people with more money, right? Mm -hmm. um, and he wants to flip that on its head, right? See, I read it the um, opposite because I, I thought, you know, church is cool. At my church, church, is, at my church they play drums. <laughs> right. Well, that's a whole different thing. We think church is cool, so we, we of course, want to associate everything with church. The better the place... Um, the, the more it's like a church. Um, so he's kind of trying to get at the heart of this uh, disconnect. Um, when you probably would have gone back to the early Renaissance era uh, or even before the Renaissance um, in the age of devotional painting, and that would have been the opposite, right? That the manual laborer would have looked to a painting of Mary, right? Or a painting of... Uh, John the Baptist as important and special, right? Mm -hmm. And would have uh, looked at it with value and, and considered it valuable to their own experience of the world, yeah. right? And so he's rightfully, and you know, it's pretty obvious to us now, but he's pointing out that the process and the, um, you know, the rapid, uh, uh, industrial revolution and reproduction of images that took place between the 19th or uh, 
20th and 21st century or 19th and 20th century um, has decontextualized art, right? That's kind of the most important thing to understand um, is that it no longer does or serves the function that it used to, which is primarily ritual or worship or um, in some cases contemplation, right? Yeah. And you tracking? Absolutely. Right. Keep keep going. You you have... I would, a thing it just made me thought of, think of was um, when we were talking about Jackson Pollock and the comparison of the CIA or state funding of art compared to, oh, the Medicis did this in the Renaissance period and made all the great art. And what's the difference? You know, they're, they're both peddling power, basically. Mm, and right. we, we 500 years later cannot understand the fact that they actually believed in this stuff. Like, right. yes, they may have had a cynical cynical approach to their power and their subjects, religious subjects. But for real, they thought this, this mattered and um, had something to do with their eternal fate. And that's right. one thing you can absolutely cannot say about any art patron today. Um, so right. it, really, it really is different, and it, it illustrates the way that we can't just go back. Like, we can't believe the way that they believed. Um, but right. go on. Exactly. Um, so I'm trying to find the, the quote, um, because you, you mentioned the, uh, the mystification, that mystification is the, is beneficial to the, to upholding the hierarchy that currently exists in terms of, or currently and has existed in terms of how people think about art. Right. So the sense of confusion, the sense of being excluded, of feeling like it is for an elite uh, educated class is to the benefit of the people who hold that power. So mystification of art, mystifying the past is uh, is in service of the, the status quo as it exists. So he says on page Uh, 16 after kind of looking at a really kind of uh, mushy mouthed uh, analysis of a Franz Hall's painting by another art critic he says that is mystification in order to avoid mystifying the past which which can equally well suffer pseudo-Marxist mystification Mm -hmm. let us now examine the particular relation which now exists so far as pictorial images are concerned between the present and the past if we can see the present clearly enough, we shall ask the right questions of the past. Um, I think that's such an important idea and one that I've been, in looking through his work, been trying to kind of work through what would it mean, what does it mean to see the present clearly enough? What would that mean for the way we look at art or look at our surroundings? Um, that does not further mystify the past. Yeah, right. He hints at that in a, in a couple times, and that's uh, what I find the most interesting about him. And uh, honestly, not cool because he's really stealing our thunder on Magic Camp. But yeah, not cool, man. He's dead now, so um, right. <clears throat> but so we can pick up that. Yeah, he torch. he he's uh, providing an alternative to this process of mystifi- mystification by which. The art elites will give you long speeches about why this matters um, in terms that are completely esoteric right. and obscure in order to, 
you know, solidify their place as the interpreters and and caretakers of mm-hmm. past and present art. Um, right. And in order to obscure the power relations then and the and the ones now, but he offers as an alternative to that um, a total vision of art where you relate it to everything in your life, basically, mm-hmm. which I'm assuming he means looking soberly at who who was the laborer who did this? Like in the in the uh, example of the Franz Halls, um, right. you know, he he gives the the background that he was destitute at the time of painting this painting, and he's sitting there painting the lords of his town who are the new um, the new heirs to this capitalist Dutch kingdom, and um, he's being asked to paint them when he can barely feed himself or survive the winter, mm-hmm. and. I think part of what Berger is saying is we we have to look soberly at all these factors that affect our lives and theirs in order to reclaim this art um, and see it clearly and and appropriate you know whatever power can be had for ourselves, right? And which is incredibly difficult. And he points that out as well because in order to do that, you have to sacrifice uh, and willingly give up a certain level of innocence. Um, which I think we've already talked and touched on a little bit in Magic Camp is the idea that uh, once you kind of start pulling these threads um, and once you start attempting to view art within its context, aware of the social relationships that created it, um, you, you're pulling a thread on a large, a large ball of, of shit, right? And like yeah. the, the well is poisoned, as you said. So he says on thirty-two, page 32... Um, the idea of innocence faces two ways. By refusing to enter a conspiracy, one remains innocent of that conspiracy. But to remain innocent may also be to remain ignorant. The issue is not between innocence and knowledge, but between a total approach to art which attempts to relate it to every aspect. And this is basically what you just said. Um, So is it an art for, as he says... um, that is controlled by a few specialized experts who are the clerks of the nostalgia of a ruling class in decline, or is it something we can relate to every aspect of our life? And so choosing for it to be something that we can relate to every aspect of our life means giving up that, um, that precious, uh, sanctified relationship to art that we may have had. Right. Mm -hmm. And which we at one point allowed us to exist in a state of mystification. Um, yep. and I, I don't know, I think that hits home for me. It really does because I have, I think, you know, just through a p- process of maturation, um, I know I can point to times in my life and in my love for art where that was the case, where the mystification itself was the appeal, Yeah. right? That it could do, go ahead. No, I'm just agreeing. Yeah. Um, that it, that it could blur blur the lines on things that uh, could have been seen a little bit more clearly. Um, And before I close out on the first essay here, um, I want to point out, tell a a story that I think ties into an important, important idea in this piece that hopefully will drive it home. um, Because I think a lot of people can relate to the experience of walking into a museum and feeling completely, uh, overwhelmed or oblivious to what you should be getting out of that experience. Yep. Like, am I supposed to be 
moved by the brushwork? Am I supposed to be moved by the um, by the scene depicted in the art? Am I supposed to read the placard and see what this person was, you know, doing with their time and what they represent? It's all good and well, I, and I think that's a natural experience to have, and I'm not saying that that is a bad thing to happen, but a lot of what I think people land on and what you see most of all in art museums, and it's easy to make fun of people for this, it's people just taking pictures of the one, the, the paintings that are done by the most famous person, right? So... This is the Mona Lisa, if, it's, if there's a Da Vinci, if there's a Michelangelo, a Picasso. Those are the things that people gravitate towards. And this is a forgivable thing to do because that's what we've been taught are the only things that matter, right? That they're valuable, they're expensive, and more importantly, they're original. So the authenticity that there's one version of this Da Vinci painting, which he points out, is what should move us to awe and reverence, right? Yeah. But that in itself is the primary death rattle of the art establishment as we know it, in that it's, it is the way that it has upheld its power by determining uh, that authenticity is the only thing that makes art valuable. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I, I was about to... to offer up the same example because I think that makes it most clear in this essay where he's talking about that experience of you've seen the reproduction or pictures of this work forever you've been told kind of what to think about it but but not really anything of substance and then you Mm -hmm. go and see the real thing and all that's left is this uh like oh wow this is the original this is the original I'm here I'm in the space right of something amazing uh and that so, in itself yeah. is is great, um, and you know uh, I where I'm going with that is just to say that it doesn't. Um, I'm not trying to be a a finger wagger here and and say you shouldn't do that when you're in the presence of art, um, but because he is I think generous in the way that he exposes this as a fallacy or as or as a tool of manipulation, um, and that it's something that we can work through. But he he does go on to say, um, on page 31, he says, original paintings are silent and still in a sense that information never is. Even a reproduction hung on a wall is not comparable in this respect, for in the original, the silence and stillness permeate the actual material, the paint, in which one follows the traces of the painter's immediate gestures. Um, So I think he is conceding the fact that an original work of art can still be an incredibly powerful thing, and there is some mysterious experience that, that can occur. It doesn't all have to be um, ruined by the realization of these corrupt social and hierarchies, right? That there is something um, that is beyond, um, beyond the everyday, beyond the ordinary that exists within a painting strictly by virtue of what a painting is supposed to be. Yeah. Yep. And, and he also, he also makes some good points about why these, why there are exceptional pieces from this time, which we'll get into in a minute where oil painting was uh, becoming a machine for the market that produced a bunch, a bunch of dog shit. And that was produced mostly cynically that, Mm -hmm. I mean, fortunately, like 
we do have masterpieces where they were breaking breaking form basically right. and right. breaking free from the molds. It's just very hard for us to to know what it is, like to know why these are exceptional. Um and yeah, just to back up like what you're saying right there, I like this quote. Um he's saying like all this is is very natural to have this reaction to art because of the mode of production and reproduction and the way art is handled today. Um, and, but basically he says, uh, where, uh, how is it, you, how is its unique existence evaluated and defined in our present culture? It's defined as an object whose value depends on its rarity. So Mm, that's why, that's why it matters. Um, this value is affirmed and gauged by the price it fetches on the market, but because it's nevertheless a work of art, meaning that this is a great point. And I think he just skims over this is like, Hey, I know this is a commodity, but it's a work of art. It's yes, it's in the market. It's fetching hundreds of millions of dollars, but it has this special thing that doesn't fit like, which, right. it, which is why it's allowed to can, per, why, why it perpetuates. Right. Um, and art is, yeah, mm-hmm. art is thought to be greater than commerce. So it's like, yeah, I know I'm looking at a product, but it's special. Um, it's right. market price is said to be a reflection of its spiritual value. Yet the spiritual value of an object as distinct from a message or an example can only be explained in terms of magic or religion. And that's what he is getting at is, is this esoteric field put right. over art in order to, uh, you know, keep, keep, keep the power relations how they are. Right. Exactly. Um, an example of this, uh, of maybe this tension, uh, I've been to the Louvre. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Um, you should be jealous. That's uh, what is that? The Louvre. It's an art. It's an art gallery. Oh damn! Um, yeah, it's pretty sick. Um, no, so I saw the Mona Lisa, right? So, and a, a thing that you might hear if you ever talk to anybody about the Louvre, or like, you know, somebody you, I don't know, somebody you meet anywhere, if this comes up as a topic of conversation. And it's familiar to hear people say, yeah, I saw the Mona Lisa. It was so small. So small, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. So small. Like, there's all these people standing around it and taking pictures. And you get up close, and it's just so freaking small. Yeah. And it's so underwhelming. And there's almost like two dual truths being expressed there. The first is, yes, there are a thousand people standing around it, taking a photograph of it, which speaks to Berger's point that we are supposed to, people primarily believe in the value of art in its rarity. And there's probably nothing more exemplary of this than the Mona Lisa, right? Mm -hmm. But to swing so far in the opposite direction and say that because, because people are treating it in this rarefied way diminishes its actual artistic quality, um, or the beauty of it, I think is, is going too far because I got pretty close to it and I can admit to being, you know, I was 20 years old, so I was mystified by everything. Um, But I'm not going to lie, like there is still some power in, um, in seeing something like that, even if you don't know how important and special it is in terms of what it, what it means to art history. The size of it was, um, you know, inconsequential if anything it spoke to its power even more because there is something penetrating and special about the way that her face is depicted and anyway 
Um, yeah, I was. I was pro- just. Yeah, I have not. I have not been to the fancy Louvre, Paul. But yeah. I did in college go to um, the largest. I think it's the largest Buddha statue in the world, uh-huh. um, called the Lantau Buddha outside of Hong mm-hmm. Kong. Hold on one sec. And it. I had one, you know, a similar kind of dumb guy reaction where you take these gondola rides up through these foggy mountain mm-hmm. peaks. It's it's kind of like an epic journey. It probably took us like two or three hours to get up there. And then you just ascend by foot up this big, huge stone staircase. And then you get up to the monastery, Buddhist monastery, and there's a Starbucks there. Mm-hmm. And But at the same time, then... You know, this massive, you look up this flight of stairs, this massive Lantau Buddha is staring down at you. And right. I think the reason, the reason it's so jarring and you realize you have absolutely, you don't have the means to process what you're looking at. So you jump to the easiest kind of criticism yeah. you can find or right. the, the, you know, the blatant absurdity. Obviously, it's, it's, you know, ridiculous to have the, the restaurants up there, McDonald's and everything. Mm-hmm. But, the point being that obviously there's a history here. Obviously there's a massive like undertaking. There's some sort, sort of historical epic and human struggle happening here, but Mm. I have no idea what it is or how to understand it. And the, I think if, if I understand like what Berger is getting at is that just to take Renaissance painting as an example, you're looking at this time of massive uh, revolutionary turmoil in Italy and in Europe at the time where at this point capitalism is being born and sweeping the continent and completely beginning to overturn how religion and you know the economy whatever how how everything worked Mm -hmm. whatever the case may be the point being like there's so much story and and history and and human struggle behind this painting and yet we today maybe it's part of being american and like don't know anything about it and are and are barred from knowing anything about it um because first of all like we don't have any sort of world education or political education or like class education or or any like even the terms to understand how a world goes through a change like that. I, I'm, right. I don't really know quite what I'm getting at other than to say like have, yeah. someone who's gone through, you know, what was supposed to be a, a good high school and then gone to an art school and then come out the other end, you realize you're looking at this massive epic in history and mm-hmm. the artifacts that came out of it and, and not knowing anything about it. And it's, it's like, I have, I have no idea how the world works Right. I, I just know I'm completely tossed around by it. Right. And I think part of what Berger is getting at is like, that's because you've been barred from your own history. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, yep. need, we need to reclaim these things and understand where they're coming from materially and spiritually so that we can, you know, live on top of that history rather than being victims to it and, and just kind of being thrown around by the people in charge of, yep. of art and of the world. Amen. And, that, and that's a, probably a good place to, um, okay, I'll read one more quote from this essay, and then we'll move to the oil painting section. He says, if the, la- if the new language of images were used differently, it would, through its use, confer a new kind of power, 
Within it, we could begin to define our experiences more precisely in areas where words are inadequate. Seeing comes before words. And I like that definition of art in general, is the ability to uh, define our experiences more precisely when words are inadequate. Yeah. So not only personal experience, but also the essential historical experience of our relation to the past. That is to say, the experience of seeking to give meaning to our lives, of trying to understand the history of which we can become the active agents. Yeah. That's his ultimate goal, um, which is a pretty, pretty BA badass thing to, uh, to bring into your, into your social art criticism at, at this time in the in, uh, in history, I think. Um, yep. And he was pretty roundly uh, controversial. A lot yeah. of people didn't like him. Um, yeah. He probably underplays it, uh, and we probably can't see it, but he really was taking on the art establishment at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and even now for us, it's probably hard to see that because, you know, even just at this exhibit that I was at today, I could see in the way that certain, uh, you know, paintings were written up references to Berger, um, references to his, uh, his theories and his theses about oil painting and about objects depicted. He certainly wasn't the first person to say these things, but he was the first person to make those ideas accessible. Um, and to make that his, his intent was to take, uh, this kind of criticism and allow it to be discernible to, uh, a mass audience via his writing and via the BBC documentaries. Um, so the next paint or the next essay is all about oil painting in the Renaissance. And if you're not familiar, oil painting has not necessarily always been the thing, um, way that people have painted before it. Uh, the primary methods of painting would have been what tempera, um, and, uh, fresco, right? So painting on walls, basically, and oil painting allowed painters to depict things with an incredible amount of lifelike weight and luster and texture, right? To give the image of solidity that had never been, artists had never been capable of before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it also happened to coincide with the period you just described, which was a kind of burgeoning, explosive, capitalist kind of expansion that was happening in Europe, but also the, the westward expansion throughout the world. And suddenly um, everything was changing in terms of the end of social hierarchies and feudalism and all these different things. And Berger is, he spends a lot of time, and I, I don't want to go into... I don't want to uh, go too into depth here because it's a lot. Of, there's a lot to work through, um, but the general idea is that, for the most part, oil painting at this time, its primary function was to affirm the socioeconomic status of primarily the either the patron, right, who commissioned the painting, mm-hmm. or the patron who was in the painting, right? The person who is having a portrait done of themselves or of their house or of their cows, any of these things that you can own, right? And to signal to an audience a person's socioeconomic status, right? So they were status symbols. Yeah. um, Primarily. I, uh, Um, 
Yeah, go ahead. This is this is a great example of of demystifying what's going on because he's so he's so direct with this. Like, you can start from the bottom up of of still life paintings, which is an odd tradition if you start to think about it. He's like, <laughs> because of oil painting, because you're trying to render these things literally. What what an oil painting of um, uh, I don't know what's a good example. Uh, uh, let's say a, a horse, a horse. Sure. Oil, that's not a still life, but oil painting of the horse. The purpose is, look at this horse. I own this horse. Yeah. Th- that's what it's about. And right. it's, it's, it's a way to represent possession and right. to, to show people what you've got. Um, right. Go, going from still life all the way up to, uh, I, won't, I won't, you know, go too far into it, but landscapes. And I think it's really interesting what he says, even about the highest form of history painting. Right. Um, Right. And he has some. Uh, uh, he'll, we'll come back to those different types here, but starting with those very kind of um, boring, the portraits, the still lifes. These things are, you know, we could walk through a museum and just think, oh my gosh, these are. This is a fucking drag. Like, why am I here right now? And our first assumption, or, or what we're kind of conditioned to believe by the way we're taught art um, and. Berger is right to point out is that this is not a function necessarily of, um, you know, bad artists versus genius, right? So every, for every 30 paintings you see in a museum, one will be done by a genius painter who is just straight up better at painting. It's actually the result of, um, like you said earlier, people being willing or able or capable of resisting the uh, resisting the conventions of the time um, the conventions that were placed on the thing, very things we just named because of the uh, social hierarchies mm-hmm. right so um, pictures immediately spring to mind he says on page 87 pictures immediately spring to mind to contradict the assertion this assertion works by Rembrandt Al Greco Vermeer, Turner, etc. Yet if one studies these works in relation to the tradition as a whole, one discovers that they were exceptions of a very special kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where he begins to get into this idea of hack work, right? Yeah. Um, that the average work, he says um, on page 88, the average work, and increasingly after the 17th century, was a work produced more or less cynically. That is to say, the values it was nominally expressing were less meaningful to the painter than the finishing of the commission or the selling of his product. Hack work is not the result of either clumsiness or provincialism. It is the result of the market making more insistent demands than the art. The period of the oil painting corresponds with the rise of the open art market. So oil painting is booming. The market is booming. Painters are coming out of the woodwork, out of schools, out of every corner of, of Europe, basically, to fill that void. Right? Yeah, and due, due to oil painting and also canvas oil painting, because yep. now they can be bought and brought into your home. If you're a minor aristocracy who wants to look upwardly mobile and, and, and smart to your superiors, go yep. buy a painting, hang it up in your, in your villa. Um, Right. And show them, show them what you own and what culture you possess. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, and so the exceptional works, um, again, are to Berger, and I think this rings true for anyone who's ever encountered something like this, are exceptional not just because of some mystical presence of genius, um, you know, the you know, Michelangelo was a, was a touch, touch by God and Da Vinci was, um, you know, the first Steve Jobs. Um, <laughs> these, were, these were people who managed to resist conventions um, and still thrive as artists in the process. So in some ways, and hopefully this isn't too, uh, too negative of a reading, but a lot of the, you know, the Raphaels, you know, the, the middle to upper tier artists of the Renaissance were skilled enough to accrue commissions. Um, and, uh, but also big enough pussies to still to paint within the parameters that would get them their commissions. Right. And so that's why somebody like Caravaggio, who is so good and is so, um, radical in the things that he's depicting, um, and yet can still curry the, uh, not the favor, but garner the attention that, that people, uh, wanted out of their artists, um, are, can stand up to the test of time. Um, as far as I'm concerned. So like Raphael to me is the perfect example of like, he's, he's a master, but he's just completely toothless at the same time. I don't know. I don't know if I, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that. I don't know. I, I like, I like Raphael a lot. And during, during the height of the academic tradition for, I don't know, for a hundred years, it would go back and forth. He was considered to be superior to Michelangelo, but it would kind of go back and forth. Who's the true master, which, you know, that you could say that to his discredit, but we should come back to that. Fair enough. That's interesting. I mean, I haven't done a deep dive on any of his stuff. I just know that he, from, a point of view of like his social connections. Um, he was just kind of the Pope's, the Pope's little special boy. So, um, was, so was Michelangelo. He was, but I think there's just more. You just don't like to the, his actual paintings. You don't like feminine forms. You like That's all true. those. I love the muscles. Muscular, I love the big puffy bul- muscles. Bulging. Yeah. That's true. Man getting um, flayed in hell. Right. So this is interesting in the way that it, relates to what you know the art the instagram dummies we're we're looking at and the endless quantities of terrible art that are besieging us at every moment whether you're talking about you know new things that come out on netflix or bad pop music um that it's really easy to make fun of those people and and we should um but the real enemy the real thing that we should be aware of is the engine that creates hacks, right? That hack work is the result of the demands of the gaping, uh, churning maw at the heart of the the system, the economic system. Um, So if we want better art, we have to refine the system, maybe is... Yeah, right, which comes back back to, I think, what we said the first time of... uh, If if we want to conceive of an art that's free from these free from the bondage of hackery or Mm -hmm. whatever, it's going to have to come with a transformation of the economy and the rest of the world and and values, revolutionary morals. Mm -hmm. Um, 
which yeah and i had sort of i had i had said hey maybe someone like blake is a counterexample of how you kind of live outside of your time as an Mm -hmm. artist which i think can be true but like it's it's going to be a lot easier to affirm that in artists who didn't make any money like van gogh or blake while they were alive um yeah that's probably the only way to to claim any sort of integrity um Sure. But well, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. go ahead. No, I, I was going to say something about Greenberg. Go ahead. Well, I think he does, Berger does point out one person or a couple of people um, who, who could exemplify that tension. Uh, the first one being Rembrandt, uh, who was successful, was incredibly successful, but the success... Um, the financial success that he achieved as a painter was came at the cost of his own sense of uh, sense of self, the cost of his uh, belief in the purpose and value of what he was doing, um, because he had to spend so much time appeasing uh, his benefactors. Um, it eventually took a toll on uh, who he was, right? But there's these glimmers in his work, and I think you can see this in his paintings. I don't know how you feel about Rembrandt, but his portraits especially, um, there is something to the quality of, of the eyes, to the way that his his paintings can... His self-portraits or, or all... His self-portraits, but also other portraits. Mm-hmm. So, like, for example, and that he references, Berger references this in, uh, I believe, when he's talking about Franz Hall's. But Rembrandt had the incredible ability to, when he was commissioned for a self-portrait, right, he could depict, not a self-portrait, uh, a portrait for some, some rich patron. He could put, portray them in a way that was both pleasing to them, flattering to them in that they had their fancy clothes on and it showed the ripples of the velvet and, you know, all the things that they owned and all that all that crap, um, but was able to in, imbue the faces of the people with the presence of what was actually in their real face, which would be age or nerves or um, some sort of deep malaise that is at the heart of their condition as wealthy merchant landowning slaveholding Dutch people, yeah. right? And he was able to translate and put this kind of mysterious quality into the work because he was such a good painter and in doing so could kind of straddle that line where he was doing what he was told and he wasn't blatantly flaunting anything um, because you couldn't put your finger on what was going on. You couldn't say, you, you have to change my you know, slightly forlorn expression. It makes me look unhappy, right? Mm-hmm. That a patron couldn't necessarily say that. Um, and so he was able within the conventions to subtly subvert the, the very purpose of, of that kind of art. Um, but that, that fine line, that dance, Berger argues, took a toll on, on his life, right? So you look at the, the self-portrait of him at the end of his life and you see somebody, he says, in the later painting, he has turned the tradition against itself. He has wrested its language away from it. 
he is an old man. Old man. All has gone except a sense of the question of existence, of existence as a question. And the painter in him, who is both more and less than the old man, has found the means to express just that, using a medium which had been traditionally developed to exclude any such question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. you could... I, I don't know if that's a totally convincing argument. No, but, yeah. I, I think I buy it. I mean... I I definitely would. I'm open to the argument. I don't know well enough to say if he if Berger is mystifying something or probably sure. not. But yeah, I know there's a temptation there for sure. Um, I think that after reading this a few times through, I, I definitely have my, um, you know my my things I want to push back against with him. Um, in that, I think there's probably a lot more really good Renaissance art than he's willing to admit. Um, yeah. Uh, and a lot of people probably have a better compass for, for d- dismissing bad stuff as bad um, yeah. than he probably gives credit for. But he does have a really good uh, kind of turn of phrase on page 109. He says, after kind of addressing some of his critics, mm-hmm. and this is maybe what people will say about Magic Camp after they listen to it a few times. Says, after we're dead. After we're dead. Um we are, we are accused of being obsessed by property. The truth is the other way around. It is the society and culture in question which is so obsessed. Yet to an obsessive, his obsession always seems to be the nature of things and so is not recognized for what it is. Right? Yeah. So yeah. everyone's like, just stop talking about the freaking social relationships and just to appreciate the art, man. Like, it doesn't have to be, you know, like about this big economic conspiracy. Um, yeah. but that's, that's his whole argument is that we can't see it, right? A fish, a fish totally. doesn't know it's, it's in water because it's in, it, cause it's breathing. Right. Right. And we can go through in a minute, just like walking up the, the types of realism at the time, um, that I think it really proved his point very plainly. Um, mm-hmm. I guess the, the only thing I wanted to add about Rembrandt and the, the artist who is trying to straddle the line is eventually defeated or, or, you know, is beleaguered by having to work for the market is I do buy that. And at the same time, I see it's a similar story that we, we picked up in uh, the Abstract Expressionist art uh, episode in that a lot of the pa- the painters of the New York School and Jackson Pollock as quintessential, you know, their life told this story of they were these avant-garde, bohemian, freewheeling, you know, mm-hmm. fuck the world, fuck the markets, and, you know, damn to convention. And then after 10 or 20 or 30 years, were rewarded, uh-huh. uh, lavished upon by the market. And found mm-hmm. themselves living in the Hamptons and celebrities with more money than they could spend. And a lot right. of them then drink themselves to death or kill themselves. And mm-hmm. my, only, my only pushback is what a lovely little myth that is, even for people who are of the ruling class and of the art world, to, to find that, to love that tragic tale. Mm-hmm. They, and I think it's what he's getting at when he's talking about um, basically like we know when we're looking at an expensive, uh, original that it's important because it's rare because it's the original and because it's worth $500 million. But, uh, the reason like the reason we're there is because of the tension of, 
art is spiritual. Art is beyond the market, even though it is one of the, you know, best things you could put your money in. It's, it's mm-hmm. so much more than that. It has this mm-hmm. tension between being, being valuable in the market and being a spiritual item. And that's mm-hmm. what I kind of see with that myth in particular of like, yeah, you know, like these people, these people, their work sold for millions and now they're held in MoMA and blah, blah, blah. All these powerful people and institutions are trading on their work, but like they themselves were always aloof. They were always unsure about the forces that were playing with their art. So I, all that to say, it's like, I think that can actually sometimes be easily sucked up because um, as much as as much as the art world does just trade off of rarity and trade off, um, you know, a, a mystified past, it is it's vital that it has that spiritual core that people still believe that art is is unique and special right. and, ha- and has something that is a but that is priceless, basically. Mm-hmm. Like right. a Pollock is worth five hundred million dollars, not just because of what it is, but because it's priceless, because it's a spiritual object. Right. And that is uh exemplified in the way he burned out and and killed himself like i mean yes i I don't know if it's i I think in the case of pollock that might be true but i think there are people who could come to that conclusion about a jackson pollock without knowing his his myth and his story and to the extent that you you just articulated it Mm -hmm. um i don't know if that contradicts your point or not, but I think what you're getting at is a sense that that in itself, the myth of the compromised artist, um, is also something that serves as a form of mystification. Yeah. Right. And I agree with that. I I get that too. I think he raises the central question though of, of what is it, is it possible to make an art, make a meaningful art or, uh, find meaningful art in the past? Um, even though we know that these mechanisms were what was driving it in every possible sense. Um, But, and that maybe is a good, I I think we should start wrapping it up here, but I think he has a couple good things at the end of this essay where he's talking not just about the people depicted, right, or the, the patron who commissioned it and what they wanted to show about their wealth and their power, but also what it says about the person who is viewing the painting, Mm -hmm. right? Which I think is probably more relevant for what you're talking about and is maybe the elephant in the room with, you know, going and seeing a Jackson Pollock or going to see an an Italian exhibition like I did today, um, which is what going to a museum, the social capital or the kind of unconscious, um, self-aggrandizement that occurs when we look at art, right? Or what it, uh, what appreciating art, how it can affirm social hierarchies, Mm -hmm. right? So he talks about um, nature painting and he talks about paintings of the poor, which yeah. This is a really, I think, interesting thing that I think is super relevant right now. Um, he talks about how there were that, that was a particular genre of, of the time in, in Renaissance painting was, you know, the genre picture where it shows low lifes, you know, people on the, the living down to, you know, gritty lives of crime or filth or 
or even noble, uh, noble lives in poverty, right? They didn't just depict a scene. In fact, they hardly did that at all. They flatter the conscience and the status of the viewer, Mm -hmm. right? By saying, you're not them, right? You are wealthy or more wealthy or have made choices um, that affirm your goodness, your moral superiority to these people who live in filth or to people who have to live lives of crime. And he has, it brings up a great point about, you know, when a peasant is depicted in an oil painting of this time, they're always smiling, right? Which is not something that you would see in any other person depicted in a painting, which Mm -hmm. is, which is meant to symbolize that the poor are happy with their condition. Yeah, and, and that, it's the Aunt Maymay, like, <laughs> right. gone with the wind. The happy, happy, fat, you know, well-fed house slave. Yep. Exactly. It's the exact same thing. And it still has, it still happens, but it, I think the, the self-flattery, right, that thing is, that's what's more interesting to me uh, in our current, um, our kind of current vernacular or in the state of pop culture. Um, and this comes to mind in particular with, uh, a couple movies that are kind of hot, hot right now. I haven't seen Uncut Gems yet. God, um, I was just thinking of this. Go on. Have you seen it? No, no, I haven't. Okay. Well, you should watch Good Time. So Good Time is available. You can. This is. It's like we're talking on the phone right now, but you can see it on Amazon Prime. Um, have you see, Have you seen Heaven Knows What? No. Okay. Get okay, going. Okay. Um, but Uncut Gems and Good Time. Both of these are films and everybody's raving about them right now. So I know this isn't original necessarily. Um, so good time. It's very straightforward. It's very simple. It's two brothers who try to rob a bank and one thing leads to another. And they're really just trying to not go to jail. Like that's, that's all there is to it. One of them is mentally disabled, ends up going to jail and his brother's trying to get him out. Right. But they don't want to get caught. Basically they're poor. They're from the Bronx. Like it's, it's, very much within that social class, but it is not the genre of the typical genre of the, the gritty street film, right. Mm -hmm. Or the gritty crime film that depicts either the bad boy criminal or the, um, or the, the noble criminal, right. Which, which are like the two choices that we have, which is look at this person and the choices that they had to make because of, their poverty or look at this bad person and the choices they made and how much better you are dear viewer for not doing the same things right yo if your son if your son had cancer would you sell meth dude i didn't even thought about that like that before (laughs) um so they simultaneously like so i found myself uncomfortable and real not realizing why until about halfway through the movie in that I'm so conditioned to, by 20 to 30 minutes into a movie or a TV show, to know what I'm supposed to take away from it, mm-hmm. to know where I am supposed to situate myself from a socio-political worldview perspective, which is, oh, I'm this, per- I'm this kind of person and I have to have this kind of response to it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it completely resists. It allows the characters to exist as human beings, mm-hmm. which is an incredibly rare thing to see. 
So I don't know. It, it feels like a really great example of, of what is what, you know, film is still capable of and is still the kind of art that can still be made um, in that it, it resists this, you know, centuries old and it's not new. That's, that's something to realize temptation to flatter the conscience of the viewer or right. flatter the status of the viewer. And it would have been it different in the time that Berger's talking about because they're, their moral worldview is different in the sense it's like, look at these poor people. They're slumming around in the pubs and, Mm -hmm. and that's why things are the way they are. And that's why you're looking at them and you're above them versus what what you're saying now where it's um, (laughs) like your, your superior superiority is affirmed over these people by the pity you have for them. And by, by being able to know why, why they're forced to do what the things they do. Yep. Um, yeah. 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 Or, or even in, in knowing that you're watching the movie and that somebody else isn't. Right. Yeah. yeah. That, but that, right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. I'm the type of person who watches this kind of movie. And that's why I, mm-hmm. I am the person I am. That's why I vote the way that I do. Yeah. Because I watch this kind of movie. By living, by live, like living your moral life through a hypothetical third party Right. Who, oh, this person needs to see this. Right. Um, for sure. And it's, it's incredibly, um, it's incredibly easy to slip into that. So it's not like I'm saying I'm immune to it. Um, I had some closing thought that I wanted to, that I wanted to share. Um, uh, I'll just say, real, I'll just say yeah. real quick for clarity's sake. Mm-hmm. I think I think he really nails the points in this chapter about why oil painting functioned the way it did, um, why it was the it was the technology that was needed for this time period, and like I said, he 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 talks about still lifes as a way to show possession over objects. He talks about um, like owning livestock and cattle, and then he makes some good examples about landscapes. And first of all, says that landscape painting it was has often been historically a place where innovations happen and the mold mm-hmm. is broken first. And right. you, you could easily think of Monet and the Impressionists as a good example because it's land is less subject to, well, <laughs> I mean, that it, it's harder to know how you own a tree than it is For to sure. know how you own a, something, you know, an object. But right. goes on to give many give good examples of precisely that of landowners saying, this is our beautiful field. These are our beautiful mm-hmm. trees that we own. And then I think what's, what's really good is he get finally gets up to history painting, which will be paintings from the Bible or battles or from mythology, most importantly. And the point again, is you as the viewer are, are looking back on this mythology and it tells you the viewer about who you are and why you have received your privilege and hierarchy, particularly mm-hmm. because at that time values being realigned in the Renaissance to classical Greek Roman values. So that mm-hmm. basically you are tapping into the greatness of humanity. You're, you're ascending again, this empire um, of reason and of you know, classical values. And that's, that's why we are where we are. That's why, you know, Florence is flourishing and, and we're the people who are in charge of it basically. Right. And right. That, that's what the, the history painting is doing is you, you own this history. You're a part of it, even though it's not, you know, 
depicting in the same way as still life is stuff that stuff that's yours. Right. Right. And, and in the same, I think the most obvious analog to the way that our culture does the same thing uh, is, is movies and TV. I mean, obviously I think it's, it's been made clear that visual art no longer holds that particular power, um, to narrate our, our history to ourselves, or at least it, it can't in the way that it once did. Um, and I don't think Berger is saying that it should, um, but it, it does raise interesting questions for, uh, Magic Camp, um, and m- moving forward, like the types of things that we can look at and think about if, if this is occurring in the way that we, that he's talking about it. Yep. You see um, what I'm saying? Totally. Yeah. yeah. And I guess, um, first of all, I'd like to say to the campers, you should definitely read this book. It's very easy to read, even though he can, you know, like Paul said, be a little opaque. It's mm-hmm. a really, really snappy read. Yeah. Um, definitely check it out or watch the BBC thing. Right. Um, I, and I, I have one other quote I wanted to mention, but, um, I, one question I have for you, since you, you've read this more than me and I think we'll be probably the theme that we'll want to keep revolving around is so do you have an idea or, or more thoughts about what is a total total view of art that he's alluding to like um a total approach to art that could redeem these past and past and current objects pictures in a way that is going to empower people who mm. who don't currently have access to art or any any of the means of production or um, you know things that make the economy go. Um, I don't have an answer to that. I mean, unfortunately, no. I mean, I th- I think um, you you had a pretty good articulation of it before in terms of it. it f- I think you you can't put the cart before the horse in developing a total appreciation of art without first learning to situate it in its context. I think that's important. Um, and that largely comes from education. So we have to learn what art is. Yeah. We have to learn what, what it does, what it has done. We have to learn how to look at it, uh, which is what ways of seeing is about, um, is learning how to approach it, not just how to interpret it. Um, and that, I think, is the most important thing to understand is that it's a, it's a paradigm shift in the, way, um, in the way we understand how this, how this has functioned within our society and how it can function. So I'm not giving it an answer other than saying that it has to be learned um, before it can be done, um, so, which is a depressing thing because I also think that you, we need to have resources um, to be able to do that in terms of what's accessible via education um, and yeah. what's yeah. what's made made meaning made uh, worthy in our society. And the reality is that that's not the direction that our country, our education system, is moving in. Yeah, um, I right, and I think the first step is. Basically, like he's evoke, trying to evoke an anger about this, or right. I think it should that yeah. we don't have access to this. No, it's been we're not taught anything. We're not right. given the keys to the past or the future. 
Mm-mm. You know, we're, we're told what we're supposed to be told in order to keep us in a certain position. And my kids are growing up. At, he goes, he goes to art one, and goes art once a, a week. And right. the, the art teacher works at two schools and she drives mm-hmm. back and forth every day right. of the week with carts. Yep. Um, and God knows what she's paid. Um, so that's, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, right, a, that's the trajectory we're on. Go, go on. I, not to toot my own horn here, but I'm a, I'm an English instructor at a university or several universities and I could barely make ends meet. And this is what I am trying to do with my life. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm a person who's trying. So, so what does that say about, uh, the system <laughs> that, that we live in? Um, yeah. And it's yeah. right. And, and the point is even like, Hey, if I, uh, it's too, we're interested in this and isn't it sad that like we can't access it. The mm-hmm. point is that this history matters. History matters in general, and, and we're not educated in a way to know how the world is evolving around us. Mm-hmm. Um, and art is a big part of that. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more than that. It's more than just history. I'm not just saying that. Um, no, it's... Keep going. But I, I think that is at least a good starting point. And, well, um, yeah. I mean, would there, we could just say that there is that moment where he does say, or we, we said that... that the system itself has to change in order for art to ch- art to change what it is or, or art's function to change. Yeah. Um, that I, that it yeah. has to be, right. There has to be deeper systemic change. Yep. And I think yeah. like, I think we're on the right track because the way say we're approached Pollock is like, here's this seedy, disgusting institution that has its hands in art and how you think about a fucking painting. Like, Right. Something's going on here. Like, mm-hmm. and, and to give people, you know, a, a personal connection to that. And I really like Berger's example of Franz Halls because, you know, it's like, if, have you ever worked for somebody who, while you're, <laughs> like, while you're struggling, they, they're benefiting and, like, look, you're the laborer and looking upon you with contempt or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. right. Uh, um, but, the point being, like, anyone today who wants to be a portrait artist is going to be in the exact same situation where you can't paint, you're, you're not going to be able to do paintings or commissions of anyone but someone who has a lot of money. And do, mm-hmm. they, do they deserve it? No. Like, you don't want to do that. You don't want to paint mm-hmm. rich people. But that's mm-hmm. what every artist, the position every artist has been in for pretty much forever, I guess. Right. Uh, um, so I guess to make those connections and, and to, to point out why it matters. Um, but uh, I was going to say one more thing. Let me, let me just read one, one last thing that I think put a bow on it from, uh, mm-hmm. not, not to put on bow on the episode, but something I liked. No, I think you're good. Go ahead. A people or a class which is cut off from its own past is far less free to choose and to act as a people or class than one that has been able to situate itself in history. This is why, and this is the only reason why, the entire art of the past has now become a political issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. that's right. It's that's that's magic camp for you right there. Here that's we are. Right. Yep. Well, I think that probably does it. I think we solved it. I think we figured it out. Um, any closing I, thoughts? Who 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 are we looking for next? What's what's on the docket? Mm, 
probably Van Gogh, I think. I, I do have some Kathy Colwitz stuff that I'm sitting on, um, but I'm not Let's sure about Van that. Let's do Van Gogh. That okay. might have to be a two-parter. We'll see. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to reveal to the campers who is Theo and who is Vincent. Ooh. That's a teaser for you. Um, yeah, this has been Magic Camp. This is a podcast about art and power for anybody with a little bit of extra time after school. We'll see you after class. I'm Paul. I'm Ben. We'll see you next time. Adios. I was going to say, what do you do? I teach art history at Columbia. That's so cool that you're able to find the time to teach. Well, but I, but I paint as well, so it's, yeah. You paint? Yeah. Oh, my God.